Welcome to Inflections of the Mystic Message, a podcast about absolute truth that looks to the wisdom of the mystics, these great souls who live at one with ultimate reality to guide us to the truth. My name is Brian Clark, and it's wonderful to have you joining me for this third episode of a brand new podcast where we test the wisdom of the mystics against our own experience through straightforward contemplations and accessible guided meditations. Both episodes this week, including a companion guided meditation that is now available, as well as the next two episodes, are all focused on the absolute, which seemed like a good subject to spend some time understanding here early on, because if I am going to call this a podcast about absolute truth, then I think we really ought to be clear on what I mean by this word, absolute. And there are any number of places we could start with this investigation, but I'd like to start with the mystic messenger Adi Shankaracharya, who is one of the most revered sages in the history of India, which is saying something, I think, because it's fair to say that India is a country that is extremely sage-rich. Shankaracharya, or simply Shankara, was a towering 8th century figure who was credited with really uniting and transforming the spiritual fabric of ancient India in a variety of ways. And as you read his writings, it becomes clear that he possessed piercing and potent insights into the nature of reality and a profound grasp of how it all fit together. And like many of the mystics that I gravitate towards and will be introducing you to throughout these podcast episodes, he does it in a way that is, is really direct and, and lucid. And in his book, The Veka Chudamani, or The Crest Jewel of Discrimination, Shankara gives us a nice kind of working definition of absolute reality when he describes the absolute as, quote, that one reality which appears to our ignorance as a manifold universe of names and forms and changes. Like the gold of which many ornaments are made, it remains in itself unchanged. So the language here, which is more than a millennia old now, might be a bit difficult to parse out, but the message is rather straightforward. Shankaracharya is saying that there is the appearance of an endless variety of things that are constantly changing. But from the perspective of the sage, this is an illusion, and there is something that is absolute, something that is unchanging behind and, and beneath it all. Shankaracharya is telling us that what is real is real under all conditions, not something which comes and goes, but something that always exists beyond any conditional constraints we can put on it. The metaphor he uses is that of gold, which we might melt and forge into a ring or a necklace or a gold watch. But in each case, even though the jewelry may look different, in essence, each of these items, these these ornaments, are all the same. They remain gold in their element, in their essence. And Shankara's definition then, the elemental gold is more real than the forms that the gold takes, because the forms can change, whereas the gold stays what it is under all conditions, or at least most conditions, I guess. I mean, at some point this metaphor breaks down because, you know, we could pulverize the gold in some kind of mad science experiment, you know, obliterating it into its subatomic particles, but the The larger point remains that what Shankaracharya and the other mystic messengers are pointing us toward is to the irreducible essence of things, towards that which is permanent, towards that which is unchanging, not fleeting, not here one minute and gone the next, not dependent upon anything else, but always here 
and always true under all conditions. And this, in, in my mind, makes for a very rich and interesting inquiry, leading us to the, the most fundamental and essential questions we can ask about life. Questions like, what is real? What is the ultimate reality? Beyond what comes and goes, what is it that is always here? Because there is something that is always here, isn't there? To start to understand the mystic message, to understand the absolute, the absolute truth, it's important to see that this is the case. And a lot of our time spent in the meditation episodes that accompany these satsangs, which again is the, the Sanskrit word I use to refer to these talks, the meditations are geared towards helping us to learn and identify this unchanging essence, this essential awareness to experience it and, and learn of its primacy and, and, and its power. But even in this very moment, and, and looking back at all your life, can you see that there is some awareness, some sense of being, some sense of self that is present here, now, and always? Take a moment to reflect on this. Is there not something obvious and permanent that is always present, common to every experience, no matter what is going on? We identify ourselves as a certain name or job title, as a, a member of this or that group, as a man or a woman, or, or perhaps both. But what happens when we change our name, change our job, get a sex change operation, become a Republican instead of a Democrat, whatever it is, in each instance, the circumstances of our life change, and yet underneath it all, can you see that there is always the same self? It's self-evident on the face of it, right? There is some being, some awareness that is always and effortlessly at the center of my experience. But while it's self-evident, it's also extremely important, according to the mystic messengers, to recognize this primary fact. Because it brings us in contact with the absolute in precisely the way that Shankara is suggesting. It draws us nearer to something permanent, something real, and that something real has at least something to do at the very least with our sense of self. And so another way that this inquiry into the absolute could be stated is, what is this self? What is the real essence of my very self? And I like this direction of, of phrasing because it brings us into our own understanding and our own experience rather than into the mental concepts and religious constructs or imagining whatever it is that is out there beyond that ever-present truth that we can most easily verify and most intimately know within our own experience, within our own self. Another way that this kind of inquiry into the ultimate meaning of things often gets phrased, at least in the Western society that I was raised in, is, what is the meaning of life? But I don't love that question because it separates life from the person who is living it. It creates an artificial separation, in other words, suggesting that we can extract some kind of meaning, some kind of significance and, and purpose out of life, if only we utilize it or, or manipulate it correctly. And what the mystics say is something very different. Meister Eckhart, for example, whom you might remember from the first episode of this new podcast, is a wise and wonderful German mystic of the 13th century and is truly one of a kind, which is really one of the great things about these mystic messengers that we will get to know over these podcast episodes, is that they are all really one of a kind, 
all speaking a universal truth, and yet also wonderfully unique in the way that they express it, in the way they express the universal consciousness through their fully realized personalities. And Eckhart expressed his wisdom in a, in a way that seems to me very exacting, examining the Christian teachings anew and plumbing their depths for the deepest, most inward teachings of Christ and the Christian saints. He sort of turns things so you see them from a, a fresh new perspective, and he does so with the trademark passion and verve that I find invigorating, opening up the teachings to show the, the inner divinity and the truth of it all. And what Eckhart says here does not allow for us the possibility of standing outside of life. He says instead, quote, For if life were questioned a thousand years and asked why live, and if there were an answer, it could be no more than this. I live only to live. And that is because life is its own reason for being, springs from its own source, and goes on and on without ever asking why, just because it is life. Unquote. Now, there is a way in which this is perhaps intellectually unsatisfying, as we usually want a cut and dry reason for things. The intellect, it seems, craves a tangible take-home meaning and wants to know the answer much more than it wants to rest in the mystery and the, the essence of things. That is not the mystic way. In the mind's sort of regimented intellectual approach to it, there's too much distance, too much standing outside of things, when what we will come to appreciate as we unpack and inhabit the mystic message more and more is that the magic of mysticism, of the experiential truth of the absolute, is in merging with it, uniting with it, living with it from the inside out, rather than standing outside of it and merely understanding about it. It's the difference between reading a guidebook and traveling to a foreign land. The difference between seeing a, a commercial of a family enjoying a feast and partaking of a sumptuous meal for yourself. And to drive home this message that, that Meister Eckhart is trying to get across, I want to bring in another wonderful conveyor of the mystic message, whom we'll come back to in a moment. Dr. David Hawkins, who echoes this teaching clearly and nicely, I think, when he writes, quote, Neither the universe nor anything in the universe means anything. Its existence is its meaning. The mind is accustomed to obtaining, getting, deriving, or discovering meaning or information. In the state of enlightenment, all is self-revealing of its essence as its existence. Everything already is what it means. Unquote. Now, I certainly don't expect you to understand this rationally, as I do not have a sort of logical grasp on it myself, nor do I think that's the point. But hopefully you can feel how this opens up a little bit of space to the, the mystery and the depth of things, rather than trying to simply extract some piece of information that will never be able to encapsulate the whole of it. For no mere scrap of knowledge is going to adequately contain the all of what we are pointing to when we ask these big questions, such as, what is the absolute truth? Or what is real? Or any of these other big questions we are asking, which can be formulated in, in countless ways. We could ask it as, what is universal consciousness? Or what is this true self? Or who am I? At some point, if they are asked way down deep, all of these inquiries sort of gather into one question, almost a silent question, 
which transcends the words we use or the the concepts we use, but which all point towards that one reality. They all bring us to the doorstep of the absolute, of the ultimate truth, which Shankaracharya refers to as Brahman, and which in the culture I was brought up in is most commonly referred to as God. And God, of course, is a very loaded word, with both positive and negative connotations, depending on who's hearing it and depending on how it's said. And I'm sure that just hearing the word triggered all sorts of reactions within you, spanning the spectrum of human emotion from outright disgust and rejection in some to an immediate fawning exaltation in others and and everything in between and, and probably more. But the point of this episode is to examine it anew to strip away our our preconceived notions and detach from our concepts and and any presumptions that we actually know what we're talking about and allow for a little bit of openness that admits that we don't really know what we are talking about. We don't really know God. We are not 100% crystal clear about the absolute truth of existence at its deepest level. And if we have that humility, it can orient us in the right direction and open us up to something mysterious that's beyond our current grasp. But if at the beginning we're fixed in our perspective, then there's no elasticity. There's no way for for new information to come to light. And so the more we can occupy a sort of essential humility or or simply a curiosity that, that truly says, look, I don't really know the truth. I don't really live from a place of absolute understanding of of ultimate reality of, of God. I may have some ideas, some concepts I carry around, some insights I've experienced, some kind of uh, attraction or, or repulsion to it all. But the picture I have is at best incomplete, and the ideas I have have changed over time. They're not, by Shankaracharya's rigorous definition, absolutely real. They are not permanent and elemental. Simply put, there is more to know than is currently known. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, then it's a good indication that you're curious and you're willing to take a fresh look at it instead of merely trusting what you have been unconsciously conditioned to to think and believe, rather than simply following what society has told you, what your teachers have taught you, what your parents instilled in you, what the church conditioned in you, what secular culture and the vast reaches of media have subconsciously imprinted upon you. Whatever it is, the idea here is to put it all down as much as you are able and to enter innocently into it anew. At some point, perhaps in the next season, I'd like to do a whole episode on this process. Hell, it could easily be a whole season on education and learning and how the mystics guide us to inquire humbly but fiercely into things. Because it is an extremely important topic to discuss. To not be wholly chained to one's current limited level of understanding, but to allow for the the flowering newness of, of insight and wisdom and understanding to naturally emerge as we take a deeper look at what is here, now, on the deepest, most fundamental level, and allow for that truth to be heard, seen, and known. Jiddu Krishnamurti is the mystic I know of who is most consistent and illuminating on this point, and one phrase he uses, which lends itself to the title of an excellent book that collects some of his insights on the subject, is to find, quote-unquote, freedom from the known. Or a different inflection of this particular mystic message comes from one of my favorite gospel passages, where Jesus tells us, quote, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I love this because what I hear in this passage is that we must find within ourselves our essential innocence and and inquisitive curiosity. In order to find the blissful embrace of the kingdom of heaven, of nirvana, we must find that childlike purity which is devoid of our rigid ways and calcified layers of dross which have set in over the years. That is how we will find our way out of the brambles of confusion into the open field of clarity. That is the way out of a relative and piecemeal understanding of our purpose in life and how we'll bring peace and joy to ourselves and to others and and a fuller encapsulation of the whole picture, an integrated understanding of the absolute. In this spirit, then, there is a Judaic tradition where instead of using the word God, they use what in the anglicized version, the, the English iteration, would be G underscore D which I just adore, because it's still God. It's still pointing to this same absolute, this same fundamental, all-encompassing truth. But it's admitting that there is something about it that can't really be spoken, something beyond what the word can fully convey, beyond what we are taking this word to be, something mysterious, something ineffable, something unknown. Because beyond whatever we think of God, God is bigger than that. Beyond whatever concepts we are bringing, beyond whatever ideas we have, they are just never going to be big enough to contain something that is as vast as the consciousness of the universe. And in fact, it's even vaster than that. This is something that we just cannot fathom or comprehend, no matter how much the rational mind might object and and either write it off as nonsense or stake some claim that, no, no, it's smart enough. It, It can understand and grasp this ineffable truth. And so most people, I think, if they even think of it at all, simply write it off as unknowable, scarcely give it a second thought. Some might surrender to the the church and just trust that their religious institution of choice has got it all figured out, and so there's really no need to inquire for oneself, that that's the job of the, the clerics or the clergy or whoever it is. Others, meanwhile, will write it off as a a figment and a fantasy, concluding, without really looking into it deeply, that there is no such thing as God, no such thing as an absolute truth. And so they will choose to live in a godless world. But the mystics are here to share the good news that though we can never know everything about the ultimate reality, we can, in a very real, tangible manner, know it for and within ourselves. They tell us again and again in an an infinite variety of ways from a first-person testimonial perspective that while we can never in our usual manner of comprehension grasp capital T truth, we can actually experientially know it from within. We can intimately commune with it. And in fact, they go even further than that. And they say that we can actually unite with it. And, And not only that, but that in fact, we already are in our deepest, truest sense, always and forever, here and now, one with this ultimate reality, this universal awareness. It is our real identity, precisely as we are. All we need to do is improve our inner sight so that we know and recognize this essential fact. Identity, in fact, was the word that the mystic poet and artist William Blake used in some of his later writings. He capitalized it to refer to something like our soul, that part of us which is at one with the divine cosmic whole. 
which is a nice sort of linguistic sleight of hand, I think, to, to get us pointed in the right direction, to show us that it's, it's not out there, but that in fact it's in here, not beyond our experience of life and our sense of self, but in a most intimate identification with it, at one with our very being. We are that divinity itself. This is the mystic message, or at least it's an important part of it. And to really understand it, to digest it and live it, it means knowing it for yourself. And so these words can stimulate some of that. It can help hearing the words of the mystic messengers to, to get a taste of it. But more importantly, I think, is to experience it by taking it within yourself. To consider it in a deep and even silent contemplation and via the guided meditations that go along with these discussion episodes. And so that's the invitation into this episode and, and all the others in this podcast series. To listen to the words of the seers, sages, poets, prophets, and saints and walk alongside of me as we try to connect the dots and then test it for yourself within your own awareness by contemplating it by meditating upon it and observing the life around you and the life within you with as much piercing insight as you are able, with the promise that if you do this, if you follow the mystic message to where it leads, it leads to more profound peace, love, bliss, beauty, freedom, truth, and wisdom than can possibly be imagined. With this episode, we're just diving right into it, right into the deep end, as deep as we can plunge. And we are essentially asking the biggest question there is, which is, what is God? What do we mean when we use that word God, and what does it actually mean in truth? And so we'll use those questions, specifically those last two questions, to guide the rest of our discussion. In the next Satsang episode, episode 5, We'll focus on, on the last question and take a close examination of what the mystics tell us that God is in truth. But before we do that, before we are able to appreciate and assimilate these mystical insights, I think it's important to look at the preceding question, which is, what are we talking about when we talk about God? What are the images, ideas, concepts, and beliefs that we have? And are they guiding us in the right direction? Or are they, in fact, leading us away from God? Are they, in fact, leading us totally astray? It's important to understand this, I think, because this is the place we're starting from, from our current ideas, opinions, prejudices, concepts, and beliefs. And if we don't see the ideas that we already hold, we might stay lost in comparing and contrasting and, and unsure how to assimilate it all. And it will also help to bring us all onto the same page, I think, so that there is some kind of agreed-upon basis for what it is that we're talking about. And the place I want to start with here is to return to David Hawkins, who we heard from earlier and who in recent years has risen the ranks of my all-time favorite mystic messengers. Hawkins was a 20th century psychiatrist, physician, and doctor of philosophy who, like many of the mystical messengers that we will consult, awakened fully to and merged fully with the absolute reality we are inquiring into. And after many years of, of essentially being speechless and in awe of the profundity of this truth, Dr. Hawkins integrated his transformation and came to teach widely and write lucidly about the nature of consciousness in a way that I find very useful and very profound and sort of uniquely compelling in our scientific age, as he was very much a man of science who, who translated the spiritual domain into accessible and exacting language. 
all of which makes him, I think, a mystical messenger worth hearing from. And he writes some things that are very provocative and I think illuminating on, on this point that we're discussing in his book, The Eye of the Eye. That's E-Y-E of the capital letter I, the eye, the seeing eye of the self-eye, the eye of the eye. And this excerpt is a little long, but I think it's worth relaying in full as it does an excellent job of challenging the commonly held conceptions of God from Dr. Hawkins' piercing and enlightened perspective. He writes, quote, Many religions teach what God is not in the form of misunderstanding and distortions of truth that occur because of the ego's misinterpretations and projection of anthropomorphic perceptions. That which is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent is not vulnerable to threat or emotional upset. Thus, God is not prone to revenge, jealousy, hatred, violence, vanity, egotism, or the need for adulation or compliments. The beneficiary of worshiping is the worshiper. God is totally and absolutely complete and has no needs or desires. God is not unhappy or upset if you have never heard of him or don't believe in him. Many of the old world descriptions of God are actually reprehensible and figments of man's guilty projections of fear. Primitives thought that every storm meant that God was angry and needed sacrifices to calm down. The ego demands explanations and looks for causes. God was therefore rationalized to be the cause of earthly events that created fear, such as earthquakes, famine, floods, pestilence, storms, drought, barrenness, or ill health. God was considered the great punitive enforcer as well as the great rewarder. The gods of old represent the demonic gods of fear, hatred, jealousy, and retribution. The fear of God's righteous anger is still prevalent today. God is not injured by anybody's wrongdoings and therefore has no trauma to avenge. The image of God as a retaliatory and cruel punisher is hard to eradicate from one's thinking. God is blamed for all that is actually the product of the ego itself. It is the ego that is the source of guilt, sin, suffering, condemnation, and creation of all the hells. It seeks salvation by blaming it all on God. It does so by turning God into his opposite. The gods of the lower regions are really demons. In actuality, God cannot be manipulated, cajoled, bargained with, or maneuvered into a position of being either a perpetrator or a victim. God is not codependent or neurotic and does not suffer from a paranoid psychosis with grandiosity. Unquote. He ends with quite a bang there, I think, because it's, I mean, it's really absurd to the point of almost being funny to point out that God cannot possibly be this insecure, narcissistic megalomaniac that we've often made him out to be because the common misunderstanding of God and religion, the way that this plays out in the world, is such that when I read Dr. Hawkins' words, it actually feels like a great relief to me to hear it all spelled out by this insightful sage who is speaking from this mystical authority and who lays out with sober lucidity just how ludicrous our notions of God really are. As far as I can tell, when most people hear the word God, they seem to think of something like what is painted on the wall of the Sistine Chapel. This Zeus-like figure who is something like the, the tyrant king of some chosen people or sect. 
And I hope we can all agree that that just cannot possibly be the case. That whatever God is, if that word is to have any meaning at all, then God has to be much richer, much subtler, much more mature than some juvenile entity who who plays favorites and capriciously manipulates the world based on who has prayed the hardest or, or whatever nonsense it is. The creative force in the universe just cannot be that petty, ridiculous, and and limited. I'm reminded of a line I jotted down in my journal once upon a time, that I would laugh it off as childish if the body count weren't so bloody high. As I pointed out in the first episode, you don't have to be a particularly observant citizen or a talented historian to see that a great deal of violence and evil has been perpetrated in the name of something that is, as David Hawkins so clearly puts it, frankly the diametrical opposite of what it is made out to be. And because we have far too often turned God into its, his, her opposite, select your pronoun of choice, Is it any wonder that so many of the world have washed their hands of the whole affair and written God off as a childish notion and written religion off with it as as at best a crutch and even as a hoax and a sham? And I can empathize with that response as I myself was, was in this place for many years throughout my late teens and early 20s, at times agnostic, at times proudly atheistic. But in the years since then, I've come to understand that this too is an immature perspective. A house of cards which falls apart with really even just the slightest prodding. Because the obvious fact of the awareness within me, the universal consciousness that that creates and constitutes life, the instinctual knowledge found all throughout nature, all throughout miraculous life, the intuitive knowing that demonstrates a connection to some vast intelligence, the expansive mystical experiences recorded throughout history that offer a testimony of uniting with this intelligence, my own inner experiences that touch upon this divine communion, the wisdom of the sages and the very fact of the universe itself, all of it coming from some mysterious, unseen source, It seems to me a pretty uncomfortable contortion to try to explain it all away as some accidental byproduct of mute nature based on some unconscious movements of some mute and accidental cosmic law. That perspective seems to me just as frankly childish and untenable as the puerile and blindly religious perspective that clings to a particular belief without examining it for oneself. Call it whatever you like, but there is some absolute consciousness at play that is responsible for everything from the migration of birds to the complex processes going on within your brain right now. And what we are after here is the truth about this consciousness. And we are looking to the world's sages for guidance. And what these mystics tell us is that through meditation and contemplation, we can taste it and know this absolute truth for ourselves in all of its profundity and magnificence. So we're circling towards the absolute, but in a way that allows for interesting observations, interesting inflections of this and that aspect of the absolute. And I want to get to one such observation by way of relating something of a, a personal anecdote. You see, I live and serve at a spiritual retreat with a small surrounding community out in the rural woods of northern Michigan, not far from the top of the Lower Peninsula. And in our community, we have been blessed to welcome in on several occasions a wise and wonderful soul 
named Swami Shankarananda, who recently led a deeply powerful week-long silent retreat which I attended and helped to facilitate. And before I get into the reason that I'm bringing it up, I might take a moment to tell you Swami Shankarananda's life story, because it is, I think, rather instructive. In short, he was, for many years before he took his monastic vows, a very worldly man, as outwardly successful as a human being could be. Extreme wealth and status, fancy cars, big houses, powerful friends, and and basically everything that a, a modern capitalist society has to offer. And yet he found that this didn't satisfy him, that it did not make him happy, not by a long shot. For a number of years, in fact, he was suicidal, feeling like he'd accomplished everything he could, taken everything he could out of life, and still left with this debilitating hollowness, this extremely painful lack, the sense that it wasn't enough, that it wasn't nearly enough to feel whole and complete. And in his darkness, grasping at whatever he could, he was, through some grace, able to hear the mystic message and find his way out of his hole. And he learned that happiness lies not in taking, but in giving. That it is not by accumulating name, fame, and gain, as the Buddhists sometimes put it. It is not in this pursuit which one finds meaning and purpose in life, but rather by looking within one's soul and finding the priceless jewels that are always and already there. I'm sure he would use different words to describe his life's journey, and I hope he will forgive me if I have mischaracterized any part of it, or if I'm off on a detail or two. But I believe I've got the essence of it right, as I've heard him tell his story now several times. And in his life's unfolding, Swami Shankarananda came to surrender deeply to life, very deeply, to trust that he has everything he needs without having to acquire a thing. And he took this to... Quite an extreme, literally walking across the country, coast to coast, carrying nothing but water and trusting life to care for him, and finding that he was always, always cared for, even in the most unlikeliest and miraculous of circumstances, and that there was far more happiness in this trust and simplicity than in piling up money and living the large and busy worldly life that he'd lived before. Which, for the record, is something that I can verify in my own experience that the more simple my life is, the happier I feel, and that when I have trusted in life, I have found that trust rewarded tenfold. And so I'm taking this little detour to tell Swami's story to remind us what is at stake, to demonstrate the reasons why we are inquiring into these deeper topics, because it has the power to lead us away from depression and into bliss. And because surely in Swami's story, we can find deeply relevant teachings about the quote-unquote meaning of life. So hopefully you can appreciate that aside, but I am bringing Swami up, however, not to tell his life story, but to relay an anecdote from the retreat that he led, because I think it sums up an aspect of this very well. He said something like the following, which isn't a direct quote, but roughly, science says this. It says, grant me just this one miracle and we'll explain the rest. Grant me just this one miracle of how anything came into being, of how something came out of nothing, and thereby how all the laws of nature and the the natural intelligence of the universe came into existence. Grant me this inexplicable miracle of the fact of it happening, and we can take it from here. Which is the end of this paraphrased quote, And, and I thought it was a rather wise insight, which I'd never really considered before, at least not in those terms. 
But it does seem to me that the scientific disciplines do a pretty good job explaining the physical workings of the universe from the point of the Big Bang forward. But it still can't account for the why and the how of it emerging from nothingness. The fact that it all still rests on what philosophers might call an a priori consciousness, a vast intelligence that accounts for the formation in fact of DNA and a, a spider spinning a web or a, a caterpillar a cocoon and essentially everything else. Is there a science that accounts for this, this foundation upon which it all rests? The answer is no, right? I am not a scientist, but I have read a fair number of books in the field of physics and metaphysics and even biology looking for these answers, and I have yet to find anywhere within the scientific disciplines where it is wholly and adequately accounted for. These disciplines look at the physical, material world and, and can only go back as far as the Big Bang, but again, the why and the how, the miracle of it, this is left unspoken and unaccounted for. Perhaps a physicist might say that it's not their purview, that this is the purview of, of philosophy and religion, even art and poetry, and that's fine, but let us at least admit that this is a limitation, that simply looking at the material substance of the universe is not adequate to explain the whole picture. As the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it, and I wouldn't count him as a mystic exactly, although he was one of the more religiously oriented of the, of the major intellectual philosophers of the 20th century, but he really cuts through this nicely when he wrote, quote, If it were so, as conceited sagacity, proud of not being deceived, thinks that we should believe nothing without our physical eyes, then we first and foremost ought to give up believing in love. Unquote. In other words, there is much more than we can see and touch that we must account for if we are going to have any understanding of the reality in which we live, move, and have our being. And the spiritual dimension really takes over where the limitations of the physical dimension leave us. Joseph Campbell, another of my favored mystical messengers whom I introduced in episode one, not an enlightened being either, I wouldn't say, but definitely a mystic. Someone who so beautifully celebrated the various myths, stories, and traditions of the world, both in their similarities as well as their differences. And he drank it all up and he lived these mythologies in his bones. It's, it's clear listening to him that his studies informed his life very deeply and helped him live in a way that was at least somewhat connected to truth and bliss. And he illuminates something we're sharing, I think, in his fabulous interview with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth, which is a, a six-part public broadcasting series that is absolutely worth watching. And in the interview, Bill Moyers asks him what consciousness is, and Joseph Campbell's response is to demonstratively tell a story about his life with his wife in Hawaii. He says, quote, Gene and I are living in Hawaii, and we're living right by the ocean, and we have a, a little lanai, a little porch. And there's a coconut tree that grows up through that porch, and it goes on up, and there's kind of a, a vine plant that is, has grown up the coconut tree. Now that plant sends forth little feelers that go out and clutch the plant, and it, and it knows where the plant is and what to do and where the tree is. And it grows up like this, and it opens a leaf, and that leaf immediately turns to where the sun is. Now you can't tell me that leaf doesn't know where the sun is going to be. And all of the leaves go just like that, what's called heliotropism, turning towards where the sun is. That's a form of consciousness. Unquote. 
Do you see what he's saying here? That there is a consciousness that moves through things, through the plant world, the animal world, the human world. It's self-evident, isn't it? And yet I'm pointing it out because in our arrogance, we seem to think that we're the only ones that have this special kind of intelligence, this consciousness. And you can call it something else if you like, awareness or, or intelligence, nature, life. Or you could very well call it God, or at least an aspect of God, of this absolute which is always present in the world of things. Really, it doesn't matter what you call it. The important thing is to see the clear and simple fact that there is some kind of intelligence at work in the life of everything, and the clear and simple fact that this intelligence is greater than our thoughts and beliefs about it, that it and we are more than simply the physical components, which is like dissecting the bird trying to find the bird song to borrow a metaphor from a folk song that I like. Those who deny the existence of the absolute might try to explain it away as the interplay of natural laws, of survival and instinct, never mind where those laws came from. They might say it comes out of the stuff of the brain, but, but how did the brain assemble itself? How did any of this come into being? To me, the notion that it is just this happenstance, accidental collision of molecules is equally as childish as the immature view of the, the righteous and jealous God of old. It is just not consistent with the blunt, clear reality of the vast and omnipresent intelligence of life, which is on display at every moment of every day within your body and outside of it, throughout the whole of the natural world and all of intelligent life. It reminds me, in fact, of a, another aphorism I jotted down in a journal of mine many years back, which I like so much that I've worked into a poem or two, and which is this. Fundamentalists are right that there is nothing but God. They just have a small idea what God is. Atheists are right that there is nothing but this. They just have a small idea what this is. And I like that little aphorism because it sort of levels the playing field, turning us away from merely quibbling about semantics and facing a deeper, more fundamental reality. And to make the point more emphatically, we can turn to another keen purveyor of the mystic message, the Catholic contemplative and Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who spent most of his adult life until his death in 1968 meditating on God from his monastery hermitage at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. Merton thought deeply about the absolute and later in his life became increasingly interested in Eastern religions such as Taoism and Buddhism, which illuminate the sacred presence from a little different angle than that of his Christian tradition. And throughout the decades of the mid-20th century, he published numerous works interrogating into the mystical heart of God. And in my favorite of these books, called New Seeds of Contemplation, he puts it very aptly when he writes, quote, our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. Unquote. A humbling message, perhaps, but an important one that shows how we may formulate ideas in our mind, but that the reality is untouched by these ideas, which are exceedingly small and frail by comparison. For surely, if there is such a thing as an absolute reality, something that is, as Shankaracharya puts it, real in all times, under all conditions, then surely we must at the least take our words and concepts with a grain of salt and, and in the final reckoning admit that they're hardly of any use at all. I mean, frankly, I don't even know what it means to be an atheist. 
You don't believe in the natural intelligence that moves the stars and guides the ant colony and, and pumps air in your lungs and blood in your veins? You don't admit to the intrinsic wisdom that nurtures an acorn into an oak tree? Okay, fine, great, no problem. Luckily, the universe does not require you to believe in it to go on doing its thing. And really, this is where much of the meditations will be focused, at turning us away from the thoughts, ideas, concepts, fantasies, and beliefs that we hold as either true or untrue in the mind, and towards something much more basic, much more primary, which is the breath that right now is sustaining your life and all the cells in your body converting that oxygen into blood and every other miracle that is happening in every microsecond of every moment of every day. This at least is one way to see it, and the way Einstein is said to have put it is that it is only one of two alternatives. There are only two ways to live your life, he said. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is. This is a bit reductive, perhaps, and there is some disagreement over whether Einstein actually said this or not. But whoever said it, I think it at least orients us in the right direction towards an inquisitive curiosity, towards openness. We can even say towards love, towards a love in which we unite with what is precisely as it is, rather than critique it, criticize it, cogitate upon it, or resist it. I like the way Rumi, one of the richest, most rhapsodic of the mystic messengers, a 13th century Sufi poet whom we will get to know more completely in future episodes, I like the way Rumi puts it in one of his poems, which is to quote-unquote, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. Which sounds to me quite similar to Christ's dictum that we must become as innocent as a child, or Krishnamurti's instruction to find freedom from the known, and is, I think, the entry point into an understanding of the absolute, which is to consider the ideas that we already have, the concepts we hold about God, and see that they are not adequate to explain, encapsulate, and embrace the whole truth, and thereby to be open to a more expansive understanding that transcends our limitations, to be open to the truth as it is on its own terms, not as it is merely within our belief structures, which are limited, malleable, and incomplete. To be open, in other words, to the mystic message, wherever it leads, not because it is something new to believe, but because the mystic sages are describing the landscape from the top of the mountain while we are trudging our way through the thickets on the forest floor. Because the mystics are pointing us within our being, where we make contact with the deeper dimensions of our very own self, and it is only with open eyes that we can see things clearly. To discern for ourselves, what is the value and the wisdom of these sages and their teachings? What is the veracity of it? What is the truth? There is a quirky contemporary novelist named Tom Robbins who may not clear the highest bar of a mystic messenger as he's not someone who's living from that place of absolute union with cosmic consciousness, but his often funny, often bizarre novels are peppered with at least occasional mystic insights. And he has a great line in a 1976 novel called Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which I think gets to the heart of what I'm pointing to here as something of a starting point for our interrogation into truth. And it is this, quote, Admit, first of all, to your spiritual poverty. Confess to it. That's the starting point. Unless you have the guts to begin there, stark in your poverty and unashamed, you're never going to find your way out of the burrows. Unquote. 
Sounds kind of like a 12-step program, doesn't it? Admit, first of all, that you have a problem. Confess to it, as, as Tom Robbins says. So what is it that we need to confess to? What is our problem, our poverty, our addiction? Well, it seems to me that our addiction is, in a word, our minds. That we are far too attached and influenced by our own thoughts and beliefs. We are addicted to the stories we tell ourselves about how the world is, and then we live as if those stories are objective truths rather than subjective perspectives that change over time and have no bearing on how things actually are. It seems to me and to the mystics who have shaped my worldview that our problem and our poverty is that we are looking in the wrong place to try to find happiness and meaning in life. We look to material wealth or power and prestige or to the love of another person or the 10,000 other things we spend our whole lives wrapped up in. And if it's working for you, great. But I have yet to meet a single human being for whom it really, truly works. Rather, I have found that the opposite is emphatically true, that outward attachments only lead inevitably to emptiness. And I have tasted some myself of the existential despair that is the inevitable byproduct that results from putting our faith in the, the fleeting things of the world. Like Swami Shankarananda, we find that no matter how much wealth we accumulate or, or how much attention we garner, it is still hollow and meaningless in its core. Even if we win the love of our beloved or attain to the highest echelon of our profession or whatever it is that we desire, even if it happens, we find that it does not and cannot fulfill us eternally or even satisfy us for very long. Very quickly, the luster fades and the cravings reemerge. I mean, look at your life, honestly and deeply, and it is inevitable that you too will find this to be true. And when seeing this bald-faced truth, it seems to me that we, we really ought to do well to stand naked in our spiritual poverty, just as Tom Robbins instructs us, and admit that we do not have all the answers. It seems to me that we would be wise to look to those others who, who claim to have found peace and happiness, universal love and, and universal truth, to these mystics who really, truly seem to be living from this awakened state to these enlightened souls who have matter-of-factly made contact with the Absolute. We would be wise to seek their counsel in order to find our way out of the burrows of our ignorance. Carl Jung, who had more than a little taste of the mystic in him, gives us some insight into the scope of our poverty and the way out of it when he identified what he called the spiritual problem of modern man. In the tenth chapter of his probing 1933 book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, he writes, quote, The upheaval of our world and the upheaval in consciousness is one and the same. Everything becomes relative and therefore doubtful. And while man, hesitant and questioning, contemplates a world that is distracted with treaties of peace and pacts of friendship, democracy and dictatorship, capitalism and Bolshevism, his spirit yearns for an answer that will ally the turmoil of doubt and uncertainty. Unquote. Jung here is pointing to the psychological difficulties posed by the horrors of the First World War still fresh on his mind and the mind of his contemporaries. He is pointing to the ongoing revolution in science brought about by Einstein and his peers, which essentially turned everything we thought we knew about the universe on its head. 
He is pointing to the simple fact, which it seems to me has only worsened in the ensuing century, that human beings are floundering in the post-industrial revolution world, unsure where to turn to look for answers, or at least finding that the usual roads are blocked. A few pages earlier, Jung highlights specifically how the old guard of religion is no longer equipped to satiate our desire for the whole and knowable truth. Quote, the various forms of religion no longer appear to the modern man to come from within, to be expressions of his own psychic life. For him, they are to be classed with the things of the outer world. He has vouchsafed no revelation of a spirit that is not of this world, but he tries on a number of religions and convictions as if they were Sunday attire, only to lay them aside again like worn-out clothes. Unquote. In a largely secular and scientific society, it is no longer tenable for a great many of the world's citizens to simply cede authority to the church. And so where does one turn for spiritual answers and moral guidance? Jung saw this predicament clearly. He saw all of the chronic issues of uncertainty and unease in his patients and the world around him and within himself. And like every mystic messenger worth his salt, he showed us the way out of this problem. He showed us how to find freedom from this impoverished feeling of insignificance which plagues us and points us back within ourselves to the only conceivable escape route that remains or in fact has ever existed, to the truth and wisdom within the very being that we are. Take, for instance, a lecture that Jung gave in Cologne, Germany, also in 1933, where he points us in this direction, and, and he does so in a compassionate way that acknowledges the difficulties besetting us. He says, quote, Small and hidden is the door that leads inward, and the entrance is barred by countless prejudices, mistaken assumptions, and fears. Always one wishes to hear of grand political and economic schemes, the very things that have landed every nation in a morass. Therefore, it sounds grotesque when anyone speaks of hidden doors, dreams, and a world within. What has this vapid idealism got to do with gigantic economic programs with the so-called problems of reality? But I speak not to nations, only to the individual few, for whom it goes without saying that cultural values do not drop like manna from heaven, but are created by the hands of individuals. If things go wrong in the world... This is because something is wrong with the individual, because something is wrong with me. Therefore, if I am sensible, I shall put myself right first. For this I need, because outside authority no longer means anything to me, a knowledge of the innermost foundations of my being, in order that I may base myself firmly on the eternal facts of the human psyche. Unquote. In other words, in this complicated and noisy, upturned world, it is only within ourselves that we shall find a sane authority, a true direction, a true voice. The outer institutions of politics, religion, art, and society and the like will only ever offer at best a temporary salve. Rather, it is by resting within ourselves, within the core of the being that we are, that we find the respite that we seek. This is where the mystics are pointing us, and it is perhaps the central tenet of their message. If one were attempting to sum up the mystic message, in fact, you could do worse than to say, Our being is one with the absolute, and it is by looking within ourselves that we know it, unite with it, and live a free, 
blissful, and enlightened life. In the next Satsang episode, we will elaborate on this profound message a bit more, continuing our exploration of the divine consciousness of the Absolute by looking to what the mystics themselves have to say about this ultimate reality. Moving away from this episode's focus on our own conditioned and limited beliefs about God, including those false notions which really point us to what God is not, and instead, and more inspiringly, to hone in on whatever we can learn about what God is in truth. In the meantime, there is a meditation episode released alongside this one, which helps us to experientially understand the one consciousness in which we live, move, and have our being. That deeper awareness that is available simply by determining not to spin around and round in our busy minds, but instead by giving our attention to the peaceful life within us. Thank you for listening to Inflections of the Mystic Message. My name is Brian Clark, and I encourage you to visit mysticalmessenger.com, where you can find sources for each of the quotes used in this episode, or where you can send me an email with any questions or comments you might wish to share. And I would love it if you helped me to spread the word about this new podcast with anyone you know who might be interested in a deeper understanding of the truth of our being with anyone you know who might be interested in accessing that peace and wisdom within. Social media posts and five-star podcast ratings are extremely helpful and deeply appreciated, as are word-of-mouth recommendations and general well-wishings of support. Thank you for this support and peace and friendship to you all.